This is episode 135 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. This episode goes back to the 2015 annual enrichment conference, The Glory of Community with Bruce Ware. This is session one, New Identity in Christ. And uh, beautiful people that I'm looking at here, my goodness, beautiful feet who bring the gospel to others. And it's a privilege for me to be with you, and I trust the Lord will use this time together to help us think. You know, as I have been praying about our time together these days, it has, it has dawned on me a number of times that we're going to be talking about things that are not as common, as regular, in, in terms of the things that we typically talk about as Christian people. And I think Mark is right that uh, the community aspects of New Testament teaching of the people of God, that we are the community of the followers of Christ, those aspects of community are not typically highlighted, and we tend to focus on things that deal with the individual believer, which of course are also true. I guess we, we don't want to push the pendulum to the other side, do we, and forget about all the individual things. That's so important as well. But our focus over these days will be to take a look at uh, what we see in Scripture about the, the nature of the people of God, the community of faith that God has, through Christ, brought together. We are a new people, not just new individual people. We are a new people as a community of the followers of Christ, and we want to think about that together. The five sessions, the outlines for them are all in your program, so you can uh, open that up and follow along. And let me just just uh, mention real briefly at the outset what each of them is about so you can anticipate what's coming uh, in, in the sessions to follow. We're beginning tonight uh, with, with the, our new identity in Christ. And uh, again, this is an area where we oftentimes think of it almost exclusively in individualistic terms. And of course, there are glorious things that relate to each of us individuals as new, new in Christ, but also we want to talk about the corporate aspects. So our new identity in Christ tonight, and then the, the second session will be our new union in Christ. And to see there, particularly from John's gospel, we'll look elsewhere as well, but particularly from John's gospel, how God has designed, I mean, this is just incredible that we participate in the Trinity, in the relationship that the Son and the Father have together, we with them as one with them in Christ. And so there, there is this uh, glorious sense in which the Trinity is meant to be reflected and, and also we enter into the relationship of the Trinitarian persons in our union in Christ. Third session a new allegiance to Christ. And in some ways, this will be the simplest of the, of the sessions that we'll have together as we just remind ourselves that we are all called together to follow Christ. And, and this, this is not just an individual thing, I, I'm, uh, in individual matter. I'm going to use the, as the primary vehicle there the notion of sheep following a shepherd. And of course, anybody who is, uh, has observed sheep, you realize they travel together. Trouble comes when one separates from the others, right? That's when you get in trouble. <coughs> so as sheep follow a shepherd, so we are called to follow Christ, and we do this as a community together. 
The fourth session, a new reconciliation to one another. And uh, here we'll be thinking together about how, again, reconciliation with God is a glorious truth, and we don't want to miss that. This is, this is really beautiful, that we, we are, sin is forgiven, uh, that the barrier is removed, that we are united with our creator God through Christ. But we are also united to one another in a horizontal unity. At the very same time, there is vertical re reconciliation, there is horizontal reconciliation, and the implications of that, I don't want to, you know, st steal the thunder that's coming, you know, the, the implications of that are just huge. When, when you begin to unpack what the New Testament teaches about what it means to be one body together in Christ, and, uh, and the makeup of that. So, new reconciliation. And finally, the last session, new service to one another in Christ, where we are all gifted by the Spirit, every one of us, to be both givers and receivers, uh, to, to, to uh, be used by God for the growth of the body of Christ, and, and how we need to rethink really what ministry is as we understand the giftedness that God has given to the whole body of Christ. So new identity in Christ, new union in Christ, new allegiance to Christ, new reconciliation to one another, and new service to one another. Those are the five sessions that we will look at together. All right, we begin tonight with new identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 announces this glorious truth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And this, of course, is a glorious truth that relates to each individual person in Christ. Each one of us is a new creature in Christ. But there are dimensions of that newness in Christ where not only are you new in Christ, but you are new in Christ. Now, you know, Eng the English language doesn't help us here, does it? Because you is both a singular term and a plural term. So let's put it this way. Not only is it true that I am new in Christ, we are new in Christ. So that, that hermeneutic of we, that understanding that we are never viewed in the New Testament isolated from one another. We are rather always viewed as interconnected with one another, as those who are, are new together as we are new individually. And in fact, the newness individually is enhanced, it is, is made greater by the newness of our union with one another in Christ. So indeed, new creatures in Christ is both an individual and a corporate, an individual and a community reality. And we dare not lose either one of those. They're both precious. Well, let's take a look at just some of the, the uh, identity markers of what it means to be new in Christ, our new identity in Christ, and think together about how, how these things are both individual and community in, in their implications. And I have picked here five areas to talk about. Goodness, when I made the list of things that I could talk about with you, it was about 15. It was about three times as many as this. But I had to cut it down for the sake of time and, uh, and look at these five together with you of who are we in Christ? Who are we in Christ? 
Well, the first thing that seems to me that we just have to celebrate is the fact we are the new chosen people. The new chosen people. One of my favorite novels that I have ever read is written by a Jewish novelist. I bet some of you in here have read this, this same novel. Uh, the, the novelist known as Chaim Potok. It's a short novel. It's only, what, it's under 200 pages long. It's called The Chosen. And one of the things that struck me when I read that really, really interesting novel about the culture of Hasidic Judaism in New York City is really what it's about. But you get a feel for what this Orthodox Judaism is. One of the, one of the things that struck me in this is how Orthodox Jews have owned the label chosen. Whereas evangelical Christians, in many cases, despise the label chosen. And this is tragic, my friends. This is tragic because one of the most important labels that God has put in his word that identifies who we are is we are his chosen people. And if we don't see that, we, we don't understand the privilege that we have before him as being those people. And of course, Israel understood that. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, <coughs> verse 2, to give just one sample statement of that. Deuteronomy 14, it must be 21. I think I left out the one there. There are lots of typos in this, by the way. I hurried at the end to finish this up, and I'm sorry, uh, but uh, it, it does have typos in it. I believe that's verse 21. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He didn't pick the Assyrians. He didn't pick the Egyptians. He, he didn't pick the, 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 the Phoenicians. He picked, huh, this one man, Abraham. And then from him, his son, Isaac. Not Ishmael, Isaac. And then from him, his son, Jacob. Not Esau, but Jacob. So you see that there is an individual election of God that is the basis for the corporate election of God that you see in the Old Testament. And likewise in the New Testament, there is an individual election of each one of us who is in the body of Christ that forms the new chosen people, right? So look for, for example in 1 Peter 2, how you see that same theme that is used in Deuteronomy 14 of the people of Israel, now of the church. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you, you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So indeed, God has chosen a new people to be his own, who are those who proclaim the excellencies of God. So there is a sense in which the people of God as a whole can proclaim the excellencies of God in greater measure than any individual Christian person can do that. There, there is a sense in which we proclaim it because 
what you see in the people of God is the work that God has done to bind us together as those who love one another in Christ. This supernatural work of bringing us all together in Christ so that we can, as this new people from such various backgrounds, from, from, from such different ethnicities, different nationalities, come together as one body in Christ that proclaims the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So indeed there is this glorious uh, co communal and, and uh, um, shared sense of that we are the chosen people. But of course, election is also very intimately personal. So Ephesians 1, the classic text, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in his beloved son. Isn't it amazing that when Paul thinks the thought, why should God be praised? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. When he thinks, why should God be praised, that the first thing that comes to his mind, and off his pen, as it were, is he chose us. Because he realizes if God had not done this in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, none of us would be here. We are here as testimony to the fact God has chosen each one of us and us collectively to be his people. So indeed, this is the glorious work of God. In fact, it's so, it's so prominent for the Apostle Paul, the first and second items of why God should be praised are election and predestination. Not too far from each other, right? <laughs> he chose us in Christ. He, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. And, and uh, that adoption is, is mentioned here uh, in, in relation to uh, election because you realize we are elected to be the children of God. This is, this is the choice that God made for us is that we would be brought into his very family. Now, that is so important, it, it occupies its own point on here that we'll be coming to next. <coughs> but just to register that Paul understands that election to be an election to be a son or daughter of God in the family of God. So you can see right there the individual and corporate dimensions of that election by, by which God is praised. And in Colossians 3 also, does election have community implications? Oh my, look at this. Colossians 3, so as those who have been chosen of God, there it is, we are the elect people of God, holy and beloved. Now, holy and beloved, I take it, he, he has that phrase in there because holy would indicate set apart. To, to, to be chosen by God is to be set apart to be his, right? In that sense, we are holy. We are saints by calling, set apart unto God by his own choice of us. So holy and beloved, it's his love that leads him to elect us. 
his love that leads him to choose us to be his own, okay? So as those who have been chosen of God, holy, set apart, beloved, loved by God, how should this affect how we live? Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So you realize how, how prominent the community implications are for being the chosen people. Because we are chosen, how ought we to treat one another? How, how ought we to deal with one another? What patience, what kindness we should show, what forbearance, what forgiveness we should offer one another. How many of you right now are harboring resentment against a brother or sister in Christ? Do you not know that that brother or sister is a fellow chosen one? So in, instead of resentment or bitterness, forgiveness and acceptance is what we're called to do. We are all in the same family. So let us live as family participants, as those who are together in this people of God that God has chosen. So being the chosen people then is an identity marker for us. This is who we are and it relates to us individually and it relates to us as a corporate body. We are the chosen people, uh, a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Okay, secondly, we are adopted into God's family and as such, we are bound together to live as brothers and sisters with love and care for each other. Boy, if we, if we could just, if, if this concept of adopted children in the family of God could just take root in our hearts. What a huge difference it would make in how we relate to one another in church and in, in, in our families uh, together as well to realize these, these are our brothers and sisters who are bought by the, blood of, by the blood of Christ who I will live with forever and ever and so how forbearing we should be, how understanding we should be, how, how desirous of encouraging growth, but not in any way putting them down. And again, there's an Old Testament background to this, to, to this adoption. Look, for example, in Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 7. This is just fascinating. In verse 1 of Isaiah 43, we, we read this. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So there's that adoption language. I have brought you to myself. I have called you by name. Who has the right to name a child? Parents, right? Parents have that right. I mean, <coughs> every now and then in our, in our church, we have many young families and lots of kids who, who are being born. And every now and then, my wife and I will hear the name of a newborn child in the church, and we'll look at each other and go, really? Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> you know, to, to this, uh, this poor kid who's going to grow up with that name. But you know what? In the end, we, all, we then look at each other and say, well, so what would we think? You know, I mean, we're not the parents. The parents have the right to name. So this is, isn't this intimate? 
God names every one of his own. Now, I don't know. I mean, we'll find that in heaven. But I, I, I suspect, goodness, if God can, can name all the stars, <laughs> I think he can name all of his kids. So I, I have a hunch that every one of us has his name. That, that is a name that he's given for every one of us. The, the intimacy, the endearment of that, to, to realize we, we are his and he names us. But then look on to verse 7. So I've called you by name, you are mine. Now verse 7 says, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. What's the difference between verse 1, whom I have called by name, and verse 7, I've called by my name? Do you see the difference? Here's the difference. I am Bruce Ware. Bruce is verse 1. My parents called me by name Bruce. Those same parents called Bonnie her name. We're brother and sister, uh, Bonnie and I. And it's so good to see my sister and my brother-in-law in the family. Just such a delight. So our parents named us. That's verse 1. We were called by name Bruce, Bonnie. But we were also, verse 7, called by their name where? We took the family name isn't that just astonishing? What does God do? He gives us the family name to bear, to carry the, the weight of responsibility along with the privilege. It is just impossible to overstate. The privilege of being named by the name of God. His family name is our name. And of course the responsibility that goes with that to be those who bear that name, wear that name well. So indeed, adoption has its, has its uh, precedent in the Old Testament, but then in the New Testament, of course, it's just amplified that we're part of the family of God. Again, verse Ephesians 1.5, we looked at this earlier, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Isn't it amazing that he used his only son to make all of us sons and daughters uh, that, that join the family? I mean, I, I have often wondered when this plan was put in place, and the father has designed that through his son, he would bring many sons to glory, right? As, as we sing. Uh, when that plan was put in place, can you imagine what might have gone through the mind of the one and only son when he is told of the father's plan and purpose that through him all of these others would be added to his inheritance? Co-inheritors with him? Wow! But you know what? The son accepted this, embraced it, and brought it to pass through his work on the cross. It is only through Christ that we become sons of God through him. So what love that is that we are brought into that very same family through Christ and the work that the Father has done through the Son. Romans 8, 14 to 17. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Uh, by the way, don't the, the uh, women Christians in the room here, don't begrudge biblical passages that speak of you as a son. 
be, because in many cases, not in every one, but in many cases, those passages where we all are referred to as sons of God are passages that refer to our receiving the inheritance that God has for us. I mean, that was true in Ephesians 1. Verse 5, we're predestined to, to uh, be adopted as sons. Verse 11, we're predestined to have an inheritance. So the inheritance comes to sons. So don't begrudge the fact that you, a female Christian, are called a son in some places in the Bible. I mean, don't, and don't forget that we male Christians have our gender issue to deal with uh, when we consider we're part of the bride of Christ. I mean, I think we've got the harder one to deal with, to be honest with you. Uh, at least I, I, I think that's a more difficult thing to contemplate that reality than, than the sun one. But anyway, that's just the way I think of it. The, the women here might differ with me. Okay, so sons of God. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So again, this concept of a of family, we are sons and daughters brought together in Christ as those who constitute a new family. We all cry out to the same father. We are all given the same spirit. <coughs> we share together, as Bonhoeffer would say, in life together as the family of God. Galatians 4, another beautiful statement of our adoption. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Boy, here you see the, the juxtaposition of the one and only son, and we who get, uh, are brought in as adopted sons. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has poured forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Here's one of those passages where sonship and inheritance where an heir are linked together. So again, brought into this family, and what, what, a, what a family of love this is. Look at 1 John 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called, gasp, the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So the prototype son, the original son, becomes the mold, the, the template by which all of us are remade to be like that son. So indeed, what a glorious thing to realize we all will one day be remade like Christ, but we're remade like Christ because we are all sons. We are all children of God together. So, elected, we are the chosen people. We are adopted. We are a family of sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in Christ. So, 
elected, we are the chosen people. We are adopted, we are a family of sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in Christ. So these community aspects help us understand how important it is to think consciously of the community identity that is ours through Christ. Here's another one, temple of the Holy Spirit. Capital letter C, temple of the Holy Spirit, not just individually, but also corporately together. And one of the places you can see that it's both individual and corporate is the usage that Paul makes of the notion of temple in 1 Corinthians chapters 6 and 3. In chapter 6, it's individual. He writes there, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body, so here he's talking about an individual person. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. So 1 Corinthians 6 emphasizes that each one of us individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to indwell us individually. But chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you, guess what? It's plural. It's plural. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you collectively? So it is both, at one of the, one of the same time, it, it is true that individually we are recipients of the Spirit, but collectively we are recipients of the Spirit. So that Spirit not only works in us, He works among us. He works through us in, into the lives of others. I think this is really evident when you see how spiritual gifting is to work. It's this Spirit that energizes all of it. So, I mean, and again, we see this in the Old Testament. The Spirit is in the midst of the people. You see this in Isaiah 63, for example, verses 10 and 11. The Spirit is in the midst of the people. And, and here there's a sense in which the Spirit is in the midst of the church of Jesus Christ. And yet each one of us is also a recipient of the Spirit. So the Spirit binds us together, unites us together, and, and is the, sort of like the glue the glue that holds us together, uh, that the power that energizes us together is that spirit who is given to each of us and given to all of us together. And, and how transforming that spirit is. Look at Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, let me, let me just comment on what Paul means right there. What the law could not do is make us law keepers. The law was very good at establishing what we ought to do. You remember in Romans 7 verse 12, Paul says the law is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the standard that the law sets forth. The problem is that that law is impotent to, to make the people of God live according to that standard. Obey that law. It cannot do that. It's like a speed limit sign. You know how effective those are, right? Do I have an amen out there? I mean, a speed limit sign, it, let, let's give the, the, the uh, state officials the benefit of the doubt for the moment. That's, that speed limit sign may be a very good indicator of a safe speed to drive. 
but it's totally impotent to, to make you keep what it says to do. That's the law. The law was a perfect standard, but we couldn't keep it. <coughs> and it, it, it could not make us keep it. Okay, so what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, our sinful inclinations to break the law, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this spirit that is in us individually and collectively is a transforming power. I, I think uh, we, conservative evangelicals, have tended to avoid the subject of the spirit because it brings to our minds uh, excesses that we see in Pentecostalism or in the charismatic movement or you know, so, some other form of that out there. And so we tend to throw all things spirit out. And it is a huge mistake to do that. Because the spirit is the gift of the new covenant by which God transforms the people of God to be what he created and redeemed them to be in Christ. And so the spirit given to each one of us individually and us corporately is the divine enabler for the transformation that God wants to bring about. But it is transformation that is not just in you personally. You and God and your Bible all on your own. Well, some good things can happen with you and, you and God and your Bible all alone. But that's only part of it. A much more significant part is you and God and your Bible and all of us together, rather than all by yourself where we minister to one another and see the growth take place by the Spirit. So indeed, the Spirit enables our growth. Also, Romans 8, verses 9 to 11, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So again, another passage that indicates the spirit that is at work in us. But notice here in, in, uh, in verse 9, he just refers to it first as the spirit, then the spirit of God, then the spirit of Christ, uh, then in verse 10, Christ. And these are just different ways of saying the same thing, namely that when Christ ascended back to the Father, he sent his spirit to us so that the very same spirit who had lived in and empowered Jesus is now the spirit given to us so that we have the spirit enablement that Jesus had as he lived his life among us. <coughs> Again, it's one of the areas where we fail to see the significance of the gift of the Spirit, in that it, Jesus lived his life in the power of the Spirit. This is how he did it. I think many, many evangelicals, because of our rightful insistence on the deity of Christ, yes, indeed, he is fully God, we have missed the fact that he comes as the second Adam, 
the son of David, the seed of Abraham, and lives the perfect human life as the second Adam, and has to have the spirit in order to do that. So that spirit who is upon Jesus, to empower him, to enable him. Well, I should give you one verse. It's not in your notes here. Just uh, in light of this, just so you can hear a passage of scripture and not just me on this, right? So here's the passage. Acts 10.38. This is Peter to Cornelius as he begins uh, presenting to him who Jesus is leading to the gospel that's coming. He says in verse 38 of Acts 10, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth. <coughs> Excuse me. You've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You see it? Now, did Peter, did Peter know that Jesus was fully God? Well, of course he did. He worshiped Jesus. He knew he was, the, he was God in human flesh. But if you ask Peter the question, how did he do the good things that he did? How, how did he perform the miracles that he performed? Here's his answer. The Holy Spirit came upon him. The power of the Most High came upon his life so that he accomplished that. Okay, all that to say that that same Spirit is given us, given to us individually and collectively, corporately, for the work that he tends to do in our lives to conform us to the likeness of Christ. So what a glorious thing it is to realize that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, in another place where you see the community implications of this is in Galatians 5. Let me read this real quickly. Follow along. Galatians 5, 16 and following. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets his desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. That is, what your fleshly desires are. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, the law that condemns, because now you're fulfilling the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Obviously, it's not a comprehensive list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law that says if you do those things, you're condemned. No law that says that. No, indeed, you do those things by the Spirit and you live. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So you see here the implications of embracing the truth that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, individually and collectively, means we will live with one another differently than, than had the Spirit not been present. We will grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, self-control. We'll grow in these fruit of the Spirit only by the Spirit at work in our lives and among us in the community of faith. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 
We see how the Spirit unites us together with Christ. In Him, that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So again, another one of the ministries of the Spirit is that he, he unites us together in Christ. He's the one who forms the body of Christ as he unites us all together in Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, now, honestly, I should, should have put the whole passage here uh, that begins at about verse 3, where Paul says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. And, and uh, so he develops how sexual purity is, is one of the requirements that God has for his people. He's t- saying to this, this to these Thessalonians who are already doing well. He commends them many times. But evidently, he knows the heart of all of us. You know, we, we all are hardwired towards sexual sin. It just, it's the way we always have been. I mean, don't think that this is new in the 21st century. It's as it's, it's, it's old as sin is. That it's as old as we are as the human race. So Paul knows this, and he has a special emphasis on this. And then he ends that section on the requirement of sexual purity with this statement in chapter 4, verse 8. So he who rejects this, that is, rejects that he should live a life of sexual purity before the Lord and before others. He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, why didn't he more simply say this? He who rejects this is not rejecting man, he's rejecting God. True enough, right? Why didn't he put it that way? What's the difference between saying, if you reject this, you're not rejecting man, you're rejecting God, versus, if you reject this, you're not rejecting man, you're rejecting the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you see the point? Why has the Holy Spirit been given? To produce Ah, holiness, holiness. By the way, did you know that the Holy Spirit is called Holy Spirit three times in the Old Testament, 94 times in the New Testament? Not that he's more holy now than he was then. That's not the point. But the point is this. The Holy Spirit has come to make the people of God holy. So indeed, to embrace this identity marker, we individually and collectively are temples of the Holy Spirit. We have the very same power that empowered Jesus to live his life. The Spirit has been given to us as divine enablement for growth in becoming more like Christ. Oh, how important it is to embrace this great truth. Capital letter D, next identity marker. New creation, such that we act toward one another with kindness and love. New creation. For example, Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. That is freed from the power of sin. Now, Paul never teaches. In fact, we'll come to this in the last point when we talk about our new identity in Christ, Paul never teaches that sin is removed from us. Wesley taught that. Paul does not. Wesley taught that. Peter does not. 
and so we could go on and on. John does not. First John, First John, chapter one and beginning of chapter two. No, indeed. But what we are taught in the New Testament is that when we are placed into Christ, baptized with Him. The, the one who died for sin and has been raised to newness of life, when we are baptized into Christ, the enslavement to sin, the necessity of sin, the bondage to sin is over. Sin cannot hold sway upon one who now is in Christ, a recipient of the Spirit. So indeed, that's the, that's the newness that has come that is marked then not by sinless perfection. That's heaven. Praise be to God, that day is coming. But that's not right now. It's not marked by sinless per, per, uh, perfection. But what it is marked by is growth in holiness, in, in seeing sin defeated bit by bit, mortifying sin, as the Puritans used to say, right? That we, we see the death the death sentence announced to the sin in our lives bit by bit, day by day as we grow in holiness. So indeed, this is, this is the newness of the new work that, the, that Christ has done for us individually. Also, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So this newness of individual life before God with the power of the Spirit being united to Christ is true of us individually, but also corporately in that we have the, the privilege and joy of ministering to one another in seeing this reality grow. That, that God intends our growth to be maximized by our participation with one another in the body of Christ and not apart from that. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 are interesting to put together. The juxtaposition of these two is very interesting because they, see, they seem on the surface to be saying different things. Ephesians 4, Paul says this, In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So Ephesians 4 seems to indicate you need to add to your life something that you don't now have. Put on Christ uh, and uh, put on the new self, verse 24. Now Colossians 3 says this, Do not lie to one another since you, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and you have put on the new self, who is being renewed, renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That's Christ, of course. He's the one who created us. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now, here's how I reconcile Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, that really they're both true in different senses. There is a sense in which we have put on Christ already. But there's another sense in which we have not experienced the fullness of Christ's work in our lives yet. So the, the Colossians 3 text is announcing the indicative reality of what has happened. We are in Christ. We, we are clothed with Christ. Uh, we, we have this new identity as those who are in Christ. But 
the fullness of that life lived in Christ has not happened yet. So Ephesians 4, we need to lay aside that old self that is being corrupted. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We need to put on the new self. So in other words, we need to put on what we have. We, we, we need to acquire afresh today what has been given us. So it's really this already not yet concept. We are in Christ, but the fullness of that reality only happens by the day to day to day acquiring of that afresh. And of course, we do that individually, but we do that as a community together as we grow uh, in Christ as those who are brought together in one body in Christ. Last point here, cap letter E. Uh, you know, there's something within me says, I wish we didn't have to talk about this, but we do. That part of our new identity in Christ is the continuing reality of abiding sin. Abiding sin in all of us means that we must fight sin and produce love for each other. <clears throat> to fail to recognize this is to end up putting yourself in a position where you can be easily deceived. To fail to recognize that the daily Christian life is the fight of faith positively and the fight against sin negatively. And those, those two things have to go together. The strengthening of faith in God, in Christ, in, in the truth that they have revealed to us of who they are and the, the ways that God has called us to live. The fight of faith has a parallel reality that marks the Christian life, and that is the fight against sin. And guess what? It is an individual fight of faith and fight against sin, but it is also a corporate, a community fight. We, we need to help each other fight sin. Honestly, we do not do this well. We haven't learned, at least I haven't been in a community of faith yet, where I feel like we have learned well what it means to help each other fight sin. Part of it means we have to name it. Part of it means we have to acknowledge you know, the, 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 uh, the sinful, the temptations towards sin that, that affect my life, that, 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 that uh, have the most, uh, most often ha have the result of leading me into sin, of having an openness about that, that we can help one another in this because every day has to be a fight against sin. So look, just a few passages that that help us see how important this is. Romans 13, Paul writes, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, <laughs> instead of giving up, oh, the day is near, so you know, just relax, we'll be there in a minute. Uh-uh. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let me ask you this question. Has anyone ever come to you and said, brother, sister, I've noticed this tendency in your life. 
to go in this direction, and it is not helpful for you as a, as a believer. Now, I know parents do that with their kids, you know, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Why don't we, in love, help each other see, in some cases, uh, the, the, the blindness that we have, in other cases, the, the slavery that, that we put ourselves under, not that, not that that sin has any rightful hold upon us, but we put ourselves back in a place where, where we are in bondage to sin, and, and so help each other see that and fight against it. Galatians 5, likewise, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please, that is what your flesh leads you to want to do. Colossians 3.10, and it put on a new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Obviously, we're not there yet. Then James 3, verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. Do I hear an amen on that one? Amen. amen. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And in this passage in 1 Peter, boy, I, I think of this often. It is such a powerful statement on the necessity of fighting sin. Beloved, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Do you get the point there? We, this world is not our home. You know, as the old spiritual says, we're just a passing through. This world is not our actual residence. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So as aliens and strangers, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In 1 John 1, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So my friends, how are we doing at corporate fighting of sin? I don't know how many Christians there are who feel as though their fight with sin is purely their own, individual. They do not have a, a network of people who fight the fight of faith and fight against sin with them. And how important that is as part of the body of Christ because we're not there yet. Praise be to God, the day is coming when we will be there, but we're not there yet. So may we grow in helping one another to fight sin and see growth and holiness realized. Some final points of conclusion and application. First, in an individualized culture, and that surely is our culture, with so much stress on individual attainment and the like. In an individualized culture, we must remind ourselves often that our new identity in Christ has as much to do with the new community of which we are a part as with our own new lives individually before God in Christ. Do you think of yourselves as part of the new people of God? Do you think of yourselves as part of the chosen people? Do you think of yourselves as part of the family of God? 
I mean, these, these beautiful identity markers from the Bible that help us think in terms of we need each other. We, we, we have to be there for each other. Uh, no, no one of us is an island. God never intended for us to live lives as individualized Christians. And in part, this is tomorrow morning's session, in part because we're to reflect the Trinity, a social unity, Father, Son, and Spirit in joyous fellowship together. So what does God do when he creates? The language of Genesis 1, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So indeed, you realize right from the get-go that God intends his reflection in human, uh, human re in, 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 in the human beings that he has made to be a reflection in which there is a dependency on one another as he creates them to be together in social relationship and, and as a reflection of who he is as God. <coughs> So to realize the community, new community, is as important as new individuals uh, who are new in Christ. Secondly, our new corporate or community identity must be expressed through love, care, and life together within a given local church to whose members we are committed. Membership matters in part because of this very thing we're talking about. There has to be a commitment, a covenant. Your churches have a covenant that you make together, that you agree on these things together. That you say, we will uphold each other in prayer. We will help each other grow in the faith. I mean, the, one of the main benefits of having membership in a local church is to recognize your commitment to one another. So that's just, that's not just another, you know, stray Christian out there. That This is a brother or sister to whom I am committed in a very meaningful way. Now, wh why a local church? Why not just the whole body of Christ? Well, because you can't care for the whole body of Christ. It's just too big. So what God gives us is local churches where we can invest ourselves and we can be committed in relationships to one another and toward one another for the, the growth of the body of Christ. It has to be local to be meaningful. So indeed, this community value of showing love, care, kindness, of, of ministering to one another in growth to become more like Christ has to be expressed in a local church context as its main, uh, main venue of expression. It doesn't mean you can't have expressions of love beyond that, you know, as, as, as is happening right here. All of these local churches represented. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. This is a great, uh, you know, other expression of that, but it's not the main one. Let's not miss the main one, which is a local church and the commitment we have to one another. Finally, capital letter C, our life together, bound together as brothers and sisters in Christ, surpasses all other human bonds. Family, nationality, race, ethnicity, all are surpassed by the family of God. Now, I'm going to ring the changes on this at another session later, so, you know, we'll, we'll wait on that. But I just, I just think it's important to see this here. We, we 
Boy, you know, black and white, male and female, Jew and Gentile, to, you know, biblical categories that are more prominent. We are the family of God. We are the chosen people of God. We are those in whom God's spirit has come to dwell. And, and we constitute the new people of God with all of the diversity that is there. And so indeed, God has designed us to, to grow in love for others who are very much unlike ourselves. It's a lot easier to love people just like you. But to love people that are very different from you, well, that's supernatural. So indeed, we're bound together in the tightest bond there is, the family of God that puts all other human relationships, causes them to pale in comparison to this one. This is our new identity, my friends. We are individually new creatures in Christ, but we are together, the hermeneutic of we, we are together a holy people, a chosen people for God's own possession. May God help us to see the, the wisdom and the beauty and the glory of being together the community of Christ's followers. Father, thank you for our time this evening as we have thought about these introductory matters on who we are now in Christ together as a community of faith. And help us even this evening and over these days together to grow in expressions of love to one another, to live out what it means to be part of the same family and, and to experience more of the joy of our relationships with one another uh, as we grow together in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.